genre. Welcome to Lord of the Rings Minute, the daily podcast where we analyze the movie The Return of the King a whole lot of walking at a time. I'm Cassandra Fredrickson. I'm Norman Mitchell. And joining us again today, we have Father David Mowry. Hello. Hello. Thanks so much for having me again. Although I, I feel like we're, we're missing some some special inspection energy in this minute. Right. So are, we sure, are we sure we can't have Jerry come along with us just, just for a little bit longer? Because, you know, that guy, you know, he makes his trains run on time. <laughs> no more noseless orcs. No more noseless oh, orcs. Oh man. I mean, we do get to see one more person without a nose at some point soon. Oh, true. True. But he does have a whole lot of teeth. Yeah, just a whole lot of mouth, not a lot of nose. <laughs> at least not that we see. That'll be Cuz see that that's the next step up from special inspector. See, that's why Jerry had no nose cuz he was he was career minded. <laughs> He does have a pretty big mouth. Ang- oh my gosh. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's angling for that assistant to the mouth. <laughs> oh, so today today we're talking about Minute 193, <laughs> which starts with um, Sam and Frodo stumbling up the little hillock um, as they head towards Mount Doom. Um, and ends with Frodo saying, I can't manage the ring, Sam. He's really struggling with that line. Mm-hmm. Excellent use of the word hillock. Thank you. Full vocabulary points for the week. Very Thank nice. Thank you. <laughs> that English degree. No, yep. Useful. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> the, uh, but yeah, this, uh, this minute is full of exactly what many comedians have poked fun at this movie for. They walked. And walked. I like... And walked. I, I, okay. In this minute defen- minute's defense, I like the atmosphere of it. Yeah. Um... And I really like the score. Yeah, I, I like the way it kind of transitions mm-hmm. from last minute with like the tail end of like the Gondor theme into the ring theme into this Mordor theme. Yeah, I like this music mm-hmm. cue a lot. It's effective. And this this field with all these rocks is an actual like volcanic flatland left over from a volcanic eruption sometime in the past. That's awesome. It's literally I, I just called the Field of Boulders, I guess. Wow. See, because I thought there there are entirely too many rocks for this to be a lava field. But now that I think about it, of course, when the volcano explodes, it's going to throw a whole bunch of stones everywhere. Mm -hmm. It sure is. Yeah, yeah, for for a a lot of hobbits walking through a lava field, however, they change the camera angles and and get some different shots, you know, because I can imagine the version of this movie that would show up on, say, Mystery Science Theater, where you just have a single long shot of two people just walking through some stones that would go on for entirely too long. This at least from like 200 feet away, watching them cross the entire field of the camera. (laughs) Why? Why? Just why? Just why? Uh, Do want to say great establishing shot of Mount Doom. Yes. With the thunder and lightning, both on the side of the mountain and in the sky above the eye. There's some cool stuff going on there with the, the weather here mm-hmm. totally not natural. It can't be. Duh. <laughs> we already know that evil weather. Yeah, Sauron controls the weather to darken the skies before the Battle of Pelnor Fields. Mm-hmm. So it's just always like that above Mordor. 
There's little hints of still active lava in the field around them. Mm-hmm. Well, in our weather forecast today for Mordor, there'll be a slight chance of lightning and a 100% chance of evil. <laughs> and watch out for the hail. So make sure you bring an umbrella. Yeah. <laughs> Where do they find this lava field? Where do they end up filming this? Uh, this is on the North Island of New Zealand. Of course it is. Wow. New yep. Zealand just has everything. It's amazing. Yeah. Just every climate you would want to film outside for a movie, apparently. From uh, on location in high mountains with snow for for establishing shots for the Misty Mountains and around Karadras to this field of volcanic wreckage. Yeah. All in one place. It's so cool. New Zealand's not a very big place either to yeah. have all these different things to film. So many New great Zealand locations. Has... New Zealand has seen things geographically. Right. Yeah. <laughs> because they also, there's like rainforests and temperate forests. Mm-hmm. So it's just everything you could want as a filmmaker. And it's cheap to make movies there. So Peter Jackson, <laughs> why would he want to make a movie anywhere else? Yeah. Yeah. Well, when you don't have an actor's union. Yeah. 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 I mean, that's why Power Rangers anyway. is filmed in New Zealand. <laughs> but yeah, we just, we get them walking around. We get more looks at <laughs> yeah. some of this. Yeah, so the Mordor Orca really is just, Mordor, I find the, the geography of Mordor really fascinating because uh, you have the the lines in the book about Sam kind of looking at Mordor and thinking, how could anyone possibly live here? But of course, Sam knows nothing about the slave fields that are farther away to the south. And uh, this is just where the, the armies all muster. But I think there's something really significant about just the geography of Mordor, where you have this extreme pre- presentation of strength, these impassable mountains that protect it, <clears throat> excuse me, to the west and to the north with the, the two ranges coming together for this massive black gate. But what's it protecting on the inside? Rocks and ash. Mm-hmm. There is nothing Sauron's ego. Worth... That's all it's protecting. Well, well, that exactly. But there's there's nothing inherently worth protecting. It's not like the Pelennor Fields, which are these lush grasslands. In the book, there are these rich farm fields, uh, or there there are people living there. No one lives here in in Greater Mordor. There there is no homeowners association that would be okay with this yard, and so everyone has moved on. But then, thank I think that further cements Mordor as a stand-in for hell. Because, of course, hell presents a very strong facade. It talks a good game, but on the inside, there's ultimately emptiness. There, There's nothing worth having there, which is what makes it so hellish. You have mm-hmm. all this strength to protect rocks and ash. Yeah. But yeah, I, I also love this establishing shot of Mount Doom in the Eye of Sauron. There's Baradur just chilling. Mm. Just chilling. It's, it's interesting eye. that we have a second, yeah, we have a second establishing shot just so that we get the relationship right between where Baradur is and where the mountain is. Mm-hmm. They must be so close to the mountain and compared to, compared to Baradur from the way this establishing shot looks. Because when we see Baradur in other parts of the movie, and especially when we get that big pan up in two towers to show that it's been completed, it is supposed to feel impossibly large. John Howe compares his design principles when designing it to thinking about designing the Tower of, of Babel. Mm-hmm. Just impossibly large. Mm-hmm. 
know, so there is the question of of perspective. Uh, and yeah. for the mountain to be for the the volcano for Mount Doom to be that large, that they must be pretty close. I mean, they they can only be. Gosh, I don't know. Maybe. 10 15 miles from the base of it it's it's hard to tell exactly yeah mm-hmm. how far yeah. away they are definitely but not much further can... away than that because Baradour is supposed to be like a kilometer tall wow really holy smokes it's supposed to be absurd yeah well wow. maybe sauron's compensating for something <laughs> he is but an eye apparently mm, it's tough and yeah, that the eye as that source of envy is always looking and you have in this establishment show, you have the spotlight effect as Sauron's eye is, is darting around, uh, which which means that even with the armies advancing along his border, Sauron is still prying into all the corners of his land because he's at this point gotten the mithril shirt. He knows that there are spies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we don't we don't know exactly what the timeline is like compared to this and Aragorn's challenge through the Palantir and exactly how that all lines up completely because the movie's timeline is all horribly broken. Yeah, uh, in, in <laughs> so many ways. but it looks to be pretty concurrent at this part of the movie uh, and which just winds up with Sam and Frodo trapped in this this little scene traveling with the orcs because Aragorn is trying to draw the army out. Right. Which is kind of a funny mm-hmm. little bit of dramatic irony, I guess. And yeah, Sauron still can't help himself. He's still just a paranoid, like vain shell of the greatness he was created to be. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And he's just, and he's one step removed from what is basically Satan in Tolkien's work. He's not even the devil. He's a servant of the devil yeah. left behind. <laughs> yeah, my my dad introduced me to the Lord of the Rings and would read bits of it. Um, and I remember thinking, wow, Sauron's so evil. And then my dad blew my mind when he said, well, you know, Sauron isn't actually even the, the greatest evil. What? Oh, yeah, there was there was someone before Sauron. Oh, no way. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> blew my tiny nine-year-old mind. In in their true unfiltered forms, Gandalf and Sauron are equal beings. Yeah, yeah, I guess they would be. I've never thought too much about the the ontology of, of Sauron <laughs> and Gandalf, but yeah, I guess the wizards would be. Yeah, yeah. The the Astari well, are just Maiar clad. Yeah, the Astari are just Maiar clad in the bodies of right. men so that they can travel right. the world of men and be accepted and to spread Iluvatar's will to awaken the people from the darkness that Sauron, this shadow left from Morgoth, is still creating. He's liter- the Astari are sent out to be prophets explicitly. <laughs> two of them disappear. Yeah. Oops. Two of them disappear. Radagast abandons his post to embrace the natural world of Middle-earth, and Saruman is corrupted. Gandalf is the only one doing the duty that he was sent here to do. No wonder he looks so tired. Well, yeah. <laughs> oh, my dogs are barking. Ugh, just need a vacation. Uh, 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 Gandalf is, is also name. the only one who gets one of the three rings when he shows up, so that may have something to do with it. Yeah. Yeah, Kurdan just realizes that one, he has no motivation to leave the Grey Havens. 
and two, that someone who is going to do something should use this power for its in, its original intended purpose rather than to just hide. Kurdan mm-hmm. is in, Kurdan's in a, a really great judge of character. As soon as Gandalf shows up, like you, you're a go getter. I like I like the spark in your eyes. You're, you're hungry. All right, yeah. here you take this. And in that way, he's more forward thinking, and in some ways, perhaps a bit more noble than Elrond and Galadriel ultimately are. Because he's willing to give up some some power, some task he's been given, that something appointed to him, and pass it to someone else to do the job because he believes that they can, rather than to mm-hmm. just hide with that power. Yeah, it's it's a how would I put it? It's it's an assertive strategy rather than a conservative strategy. Because Elrond and Galadriel only protect their own lands and give mm-hmm. out small tokens as gifts for protection rather than uh, explicitly providing the maximum amount of protection that they could for travelers leaving their lands or people doing this task. Whereas Gandalf is gifted with the the ring of fire and ultimately it helps him defeat the Balrog so the journey can continue. Mm -hmm. Gandalf's cool. Gandalf's real cool. There's just not a whole lot to talk about in this minute. So you heard it. You heard it here first folks. Gandalf. Cool. Gandalf is real, real cool. He's real cool. With the yeah, Cause what else are we going to talk about? We're going to talk about the frying pan dangling from uh, Sam's belt right, here. Exactly. <laughs> um, but well, I, I've always thought the whole thing with the Astari is really cool from the first time I, I read, I think the first time I became aware of them separate from the books and what that means was in, I think it's unfinished tales, but it might be lost tales one. I'm not sure. Uh, and then the Silmarillion goes into it more like explicitly gives us names for, um, Saruman and Gandalf as they were as Maiar, which is mm-hmm. uh, Saruman is Kurinir and Gandalf is Oloran. Mm-hmm. And Oloran is called the wisest of the Maiar from the perspective of uh, who's, I think, I think it, it is Mondos that sent them out. Uh, I think Mondos calls him the wisest of the Maiar. Which as is, in, which like is high hall, praise. The halls of? Yes. Mm-hmm. It's a uh, Mondos, the hands of fate. <laughs> <laughs> almost, almost, almost. Oh, okay, okay. I've always liked the kind of blend between, um, of, of like the Olympic pantheon into the the pantheon of Valar and Maiar that kind of exists in this story. I think it's an interesting yeah. wrinkle compared to Tolkien's uh, Catholicism, because Greek and Roman myths are so foundational for every other myth in Europe. Well, yeah, I, I think the Tolkien shared that fascination with myth with uh, his good friend C.S. Lewis. And Lewis talked, he floated this idea that the gods represented real spiritual powers that were active in the world and that we as humans named as gods and treated as such. Um, St. Paul talks about in his, I think, letter to the Ephesians, where he talks about our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the powers and principalities of this age. And so even in the the first century, there was that idea operative within Greco-Roman society that there are spiritual powers out there and they need placating. We need to make them feel good so they don't flood us, they don't curse us, they don't get mad at us. And that's what so many of the myths of the gods are about, where you don't want the gods to show up like, oh no, Zeus is here as a house guest. Crap, panic. What's going to happen next? <laughs> yeah, and well. For, yeah, for, and then Lewis and Tolkien, I think they, they worked with those ideas and coming from their Christian imaginations, uh, 
tried to reconcile them to the idea of an all-powerful god. You know, in Tolkien and the Silmarillion, in his creation myth, he sees these lesser uh, uh, Valar as coming out of the creative will of Iluvatar. For Lewis, in uh, that hideous strength, the last of his uh, space trilogy, he incorporates King Arthur and the Greek gods into this kind of crazy <laughs> end of the world story that he spins. But Lewis likes to do that. Just read the last battle and Lewis just kind of goes nuts for <laughs> apocalyptic <Yeah>. and eschatological <laughs> imagery. I've never read uh, all Lewis. of Narnia. Oh, really? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I've only read The Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe. It's the only one of them oh, I've read. Because I read it in one. school. But I have right, a copy Cassandra, of them all which, in one. I just haven't gotten through it. Cassandra, which is the best one? Uh, Voyage of the Dawn Treader. That is the correct answer. Yeah, see? <laughs> okay, okay. Yes. Voyage of the Dawn Treader <laughs> is very good. I I don't think you even... It would help to read Prince Caspian before that, which is the one that comes immediately before it, but yeah, you mm-hmm. really don't need to. Dawn, Dawn Treader is, is just a great story by Lewis where he says, okay, what if I wrote the Odyssey, but made it about kids? Uh, yeah. Nice. And so one thing by C.S. Have... Lewis I have read that I really, really enjoyed and uh, haven't revisited in a long time oh, is the screw tape, tape letters. letters. Yeah. Those Oof, are good too. Which are so very nice. good. Very, yes. very good. Well, I remember someone wrote to Lewis like, why don't you write more screw tape letters? And Lewis says, it's exhausting. I have to think like a <laughs> demon the entire time. It's horrible. And then someone else wrote, well, then why don't you write a book of letters from an angel? And Lewis says, oh, I, I can't do that. I have no idea how an angel thinks. I can imagine what a devil thinks, but I, I couldn't. What did he say? Something like every word would have to carry with it the breath of the eternal and the blessedness of heaven. And I can't do that. Mm-hmm. But thinking about how to tempt and cheat my fellow man, I, mean, oh, I yeah. can imagine that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, sure. Easy peasy. You know, humans are very fallible creatures. That's been my experience in my own personal <laughs> life, let me tell you. Oh, boy. Um, did you want to go ahead and talk about your experience with Lord of the Rings, um, since this one's kind of a light one? And then we'll... Um, well, sure. Uh, Lord of the Rings is one of my favorite books. It, there was a space of time where I was reading it every year. The stories were introduced to me by my father, who uh, was very into them. And like I said, he would read portions of it to me and my brother. And we didn't get through the whole story, but I got enough to catch the wonder of Middle Earth. And the it was my first introduction to fantasy literature, this idea of another world where there were uh, there were wizards and dragons and uh, heroes and rings and enemies to be defeated and you know giant monsters and special inspectors and you know the whole wonder <laughs> of the fantasy genre mm-hmm. uh, and I still have the beat up paperback uh, Ballantine books ver- uh, version of the Lord of the Rings uh, with uh, the kind of crazy, uh, 1970s cover art on it. And yeah, like one I is recently... blue, one is green, one is red. Um, I no, I have, I can't. My bookshelf is is way too far away to get. No, it, it's these kind of uh, crazy. 
uh, almost phantasmagorical depictions, especially for Return of the King, because the artist wanted to capture the, the hellscape of Mordor. But it's a mm-hmm. lot of blacks and dark purples. Now these are old oh, are shabby they the paperbacks white books that I with the pictures. On yes, the yes. Yeah, oh. I yeah, used yeah. to have the hardcover set of those that I got discarded from uh, my middle school library. Oh, nice, nice pickup. Uh, yeah. So recently, I. I well, recently, when I was in college, I picked myself up a, an all-in-one volume of it. Um, but I, I read those books and loved the stories for them. And so, of course, I was thrilled when they made movies of one of my favorite books. And I watched the theatrical cut of The Fellowship of the Ring. And unfortunately, I could not let go of the books when I watched the movie. Mm-hmm. And it got in the way of my enjoyment Tom of the film. <laughs> It wasn't actually that was not my biggest problem. My biggest problem was Mary and Pippin, mm. because in the book, Mary and Pippin are not buffoons. Pippin yeah. is an idiot, yes, but they are not clowns in the story. That that is, yeah. they are not there for comedic relief. Especially Mary. Mary is the responsible one, uh, and he he and Pippin kind of keep each other honest anyway. Uh, so that, that just kind of bothered me like, oh, okay, but maybe I can just you know, sit with this and, and not having Tom Bombadil. Yeah. It bugged me, you know, in hindsight, I think that's a good choice. You know, if you're going to adapt yeah. the fellowship of the ring, you've, you've got to cut something because otherwise mm-hmm. each movie is going to be a three parter <laughs> and that's, that's just not tenable. You just can't do that. The, the, the experience, however, of that first movie, soured me on the movie so much that I did not go and see the two towers or return of the King in theaters. I would watch them after they came out on DVD, but kind of in fits and starts and just bits and pieces of them. Uh, Mm -hmm. The one I've seen the least of is actually the two towers. I've seen the most of the return of the King. I've seen most of the battle of Pelennor fields and kind of everything from the confrontation between Frodo and Gollum on to the end and then to the end and then to the end and then to the end. <laughs> um, and again, when I saw the, the end of Return of the King, I couldn't let go of the book because it lacked the scouring of the Shire. Mm-hmm. And that is something I don't agree with. Uh, and I'll, I'll talk a little bit about that on Friday. Um, mm-hmm. as, as to why I think that is because of one of the major themes that I think Tolkien has put into the story that requires the scouring of the Shire in order to make sense of, of what happens. Um, now that said, uh, these movies changed the way we look at cinema. It changed the way movies were made. Uh, mm-hmm. I have every respect for the craftsmanship that went into these. It's incredible that they shot all of these back to back to back and took a huge gamble in releasing them. It is uh, one of the formative cinematic experiences of people of my generation since these came out um, Mm -hmm. right after September 11th. And my generation needed a story like Lord of the Rings to present a triumph of good over evil, but in a way that didn't fall into a kind of jingoistic nationalism uh, because mm-hmm. the, uh, the the really r- rabid patriotic version of this story would have Aragorn claim the ring and just absolutely own Sauron. But that's not <laughs> Or, you know, fight Tolkien. him in a sword fight up the side <laughs> of Mount <laughs> <Island>. <laughs> That would be silly. <laughs> Why would they do that? 
<laughs> Why would that be a good idea? <clears throat> anyway, but that's not the story Tolkien wrote, right? Tolkien wrote a story about the little guy uh, doing the difficult thing because he knows that it's right. And in the end, not succeeding. And mm -hmm. in the end, the quest fails. And yet it still succeeds, which is something that Tolkien loved because, again, because of his Catholic imagination. Um, the, the cross is a defeat. Jesus died and was buried and descended into hell. It is, by all worldly accounts, the story of the ultimate loser. And yet it's not the end of the story. And yet Jesus rises on the third day and now lives and reigns forever. And so uh, Tolkien came up with this word, EU catastrophe, EU catastrophe, which is the happy catastrophe. That is something that happens suddenly and without warning. That's all for the better. Uh, and the resurrection is the EU catastrophe of history, uh, where all of a sudden the, the, the ground shakes, the tomb doors are split open and out walks a man who was killed, who was dead as a doornail, who was stabbed in the side where blood and water came gushing out. In Tolkien's fiction, that you, that you catastrophe comes with the ring being destroyed um, mm -hmm. of the quest succeeding through the least likely means through Gollum, because Gollum did have some part to play before the end. And the pity of Bilbo that stayed his hand bears fruit in the ring ultimately being destroyed. Right. And yeah. it, I think it's it's important that the ring ends up being destroyed that way, not through a claim of power, because the, the ring represents that temptation to control. Uh, St. Augustine, one of the great theologians of the Christian tradition, talked about the libido dominandi, the desire to dominate. And that's what the ring is. The ring is mm -hmm. an instantiation of the libido dominandi. And it gives power according to the wearer's stature. So for Gollum and Bilbo and Frodo, they're all hobbits or hobbit-like. They pad about, they're stealthy, they're sneaky. So of course it makes them invisible. It takes what they're strong at and makes it better. For uh, Isildur or for Sauron, that ring, oh my gosh, it does all sorts of really nasty things because it heightens that power and feeds into the strength in a dominating way, in a controlling way. And mm -hmm. it, it tempts yeah. the, the bearer to delusions of grandeur. You know, it's, there's that scene in the book where Sam feels the ring and the ring tries to tempt Sam. It's like, well, maybe you can make Mordor an entire garden. Uh -huh. oh, is this, is yeah. this really going to get him? Uh, well, well, we're going to try. Yeah, garden, Sam. We, how about that? That's the, we just talked the about best that you because can do. It, it happened like three weeks ago in the in the movie where could where mm -hmm. the only place it could be. And it's the thing I kind of miss the most from this adaptation of the movie. Yeah, the temptation. Right, because Sam, Sam is, is so good. Yeah, Sam, he, Sam is just so pure that the best that the ring can tempt him with is like maybe you could make it really green and and grow mm -hmm. some nice turnips. Oh, oh what am I doing? <laughs> says the ring. Is this is this really what I've come to? Have a family uh, with that nice and, girl, Rosie. <laughs> <laughs> How about that? It sounds pretty nice, right? It sounds like what what is happening? I used to be somebody. I used to I could have been a contender, says the ring. Uh and the ring afflicts the will. It, and and this is something that's important for an understanding of sin in the Catholic tradition, because 
for, for Catholics, sin comes through the will. It comes through the desire to commit the sin. Because mm. I can think about the sin of you know murder, for instance. I can imagine that, but I'm not guilty of that sin unless I want to do it. Once the will gives its assent to that idea, that's where something has missed the mark. That is where a good has been corrupted. And the, the insidiousness of the ring is that it works on Frodo's will. His hand moves without his desiring it. He needs Frodo to support his will and to hold his hand to keep him from doing what he knows is wrong. Frodo mm. knows that this, the ring is evil and is not to be used, but his will is being twisted and corrupted until eventually, at the very end, he breaks and he gives mm. in to that temptation. Uh, yeah. and, and he only that, breaks once separated from Sam at the end. Yeah. Right. And, and, and when he's presented with the loss of the power, uh, again, going back to, to St. Augustine, St. Augustine struggled against uh, the sin of lust, you know, and trying to get his, his physical passions under control. Uh, his famous prayer is, Lord, give me chastity, but not yet. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Uh, it's, it's a very honest prayer. You got to be honest with God in prayer. And when he would consider turning away from his sins, the way he wrote about his experience is that he felt like they were picking at his back saying, well, you're not really going to abandon us, are you? And, and it's so difficult to turn away from sin because we feel this this desire to dominate, this ability to control, to, to give myself what I want, Uh like uh, then the conversation between Gollum and Smeagol, where you know Gollum says, you know, maybe we can be uh, Smeagol the Great, King Gollum, and have fish every day, and that's the the will being corrupted, this desire for something that you know is good. Fish are very tasty and nice, but our only wish so to many catch of them right. our only wish <laughs> catch nice tasty fish, but to have too many of them and to, to puff oneself up as, as Gollum the Great or King Smeagol. No, that, that's not the way to go about it. Me, right? Yeah, it's you. <laughs> Thinking about fish. Right? <laughs> nice, Ooh, tasty what? fish. Juicy <laughs> sweet. Oh, um, well, thank you for that. Thank you for being our guest again this week. Um, oh, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Uh, so we're from the website duelinggenre.com you can check out some of the other dueling genre at movies by minute podcasts um, I believe you were on Spider-Man Minute I was in fact on Spider-Man Minute talking about yeah. uh, a very dubious prayer by one Edward Brock Jr <laughs> oh yes of course mm-hmm <laughs> No, but we I had a very good time with the with the web slingers over at Spider-Man Minute. So I believe those were uh, I can't remember which minutes those were exactly, but it involved Pretty near the bell the tower and, and a kind of anti-baptism and uh -huh. you know, a depression hoodie. So yeah, look look up those minutes. I had a I had a really fun time. Uh, I'm a sucker for some good baptism imagery. <laughs> this um I mean we've talked about Yeah, we've talked about several. baptism imagery in yeah. several places in the, these movies. Yeah. Um, oh yeah. Or just religious imagery in general, especially with with Theoden. Yes. Um but yeah, so check out some of those movies by minutes podcasts if you haven't already and we'll be back tomorrow to talk more about Return of the King. Bye. Bye. <laughs>